We're going to talk about AI semiconductors, NVIDIA, and um, what this all means for us today with Doug O'Loughlin, author of the Substack FabricatedKnowledge.com, which I've been reading religiously for three years. And had I uh, uh, put my money where my mouth is um, with what Doug has been saying, I would be a lot richer today than I am uh, uh, currently because Doug has for years been writing about the interaction between semiconductors and the uh, AI revolution, which we're all living through today. So in this conversation, I want to focus it in particular on, on NVIDIA and talk about how this firm sort of rose to prominence and uh, just how important it is to the uh, large language model revolution we're currently living through. And you know what are the future corporate as well as policy implications of NVIDIA being a trillion dollar plus um, seemingly indispensable to um, whatever is going to happen for uh, artificial intelligence in the, in the coming years. Uh, Doug, welcome back to China Talk. Thank you for having me, Jordan. I'm, I'm happy to be back. Jensen Huang, uh, born in Taiwan, moves to the U.S. at four um, in 1994, decides he wants to uh, do computer graphics. Uh, take us from there, Doug. What's the, uh, what are the deep origins of NVIDIA? NVIDIA first was truly like a fly-by-night thing. They knew they wanted to do graphics cards. There were another, uh, there were a few other competitors, but um, the first name, actually, the 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 origin of the company is NV Next Version. They didn't really have a, a name for the company at all. They just they just called all their their files NV uh, Next Version. And so at some point they have to incorporate, and then they're like, um, well, we're gonna do Nvidia for um, uh, the Latin word for NV, and they just did NV. So. That's how, you know, that's how the naming came around. That's how they first started. They were always just focused on the next chips. And their first chip they made in 1995 is NV1. And so this chip is pretty much just like a low-level graphics card to uh, enter the graphics market. And so this is like, you know, way back history. Uh, we're starting to add graphical user, face, uh, user interfaces to computers. And so um, they partner with uh, what is now SDM today, and they launched their first chip. It's okay. They launched their second chip, which was a little better, and then um, they skirt bankruptcy, and then they finally launched this chip called Rivia 128. Rivia 128 was like their defining moment, and um, they started to, and essentially since then, they've been always been a juggernaut in the 3D graphics industry. Um, at this point, they're kind of duking out with uh, Silicon Graphics, 3DFX, uh, S3, there's like a lot of other companies, um, but they don't matter, because NVIDIA and ATI, uh, ATI, which eventually ends up being, um, which essentially ends up being AMD, are the only two companies to make it through this like intense period. There were, you know, tens of graphics cards, and Nvidia really was the winner of it all. So, um, you know, at this at this point, 2000, 2001, 2002, they really become like the stalwart, have an amazing series of products, take take a lot of share, usually at the high end of the market, and that really is the story of, you know, I guess the beginning days of Nvidia from you know, a tiny fledgling chip company where they were fabulous. And then they started to make new products, eventually won their place into the market share and uh, became dominant and have held that position in gaming ever since. Um, the transition yeah. into, and maybe I should talk about that right now. It's like the transition from gaming into AI. Is well, that- let's just, let's just stay, let's stay, on, let's stay on gaming for a second. So Doug, I remember, you know, shout out to PC Gamer um, in the, in the nineties, sort of reading about all these graphics cards and it was like NVIDIA versus everyone else. And there would be these, this, like these big spec battle, um, which I think is my sort of first introduction to computing. It must've been, um, sort of watching like these, you know, the, like the real GL scores like go up over time. All right. 
Doug, so I'm, uh, you know, everyone wants green in their computers. Uh, NVIDIA is the king of computer gaming, but um, that wasn't enough for uh, NVIDIA's leadership, it seems. So how did they um, take the firm to the next level? So Jensen has always been very vocal about accelerated compute. Okay, so um, there's kind of a there's kind of an important shift here that I want to talk about and kind of just explain to everyone um, the difference between parallel computing and I guess the rest of computing. So x86 essentially, which is like the CPUs that you're familiar with, uh, take instructions, they fetch the instructions, they do the job, they put it back. They do that very, very quickly. Um, GPUs are specifically meant for rendering each and every single pixel on your screen, right? And so each pixel and each color and the location and the change of it, it's a very parallel problem because, you know, it's like, let's say 1080p, there's thousands of pixels and each of the pixels need to know how to move and how to change and whatever. So you can't just do this with the CPU because CPU would be like, they'll be trying to calculate each individual pixel. You need this like, you need this machine that is extremely wide parallel so that it could do all these little com um, computations in in parallel at the same time, and that's how you get, you get a graphic uh, a graphic interface, right? Um, well, those three pixels, those like uh, those shaders, the, the calculating triangles, is 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 best done by uh, matrix multiplication, which is really important for AI. So the type of calculation that GPUs were meant for, which is the you know the graphics processing unit um, for the the highly parallel to calculate all the pixels, ends up being almost a perfect use case for what would be the primary, um, the most heavy part of computing for AI. And so, so, uh, so now so, they kind so of, um, was, yeah. Let me just say, let's say on that part. Is it just a happenstance that what, what you need to render tribes to ends up being something um, that the deep learning revolution builds off of? Or, or is there something more fundamental going on um, with this sort of linear versus parallel compute thing that um, uh, it wasn't necessarily something that NVIDIA just lucked into by dominating um, the gaming industry? I would say um, a mix of both. Um, they're definitely like the type of processor, right, definitely ends up being well-suited for the gaming. And, and, and it's like, look, there's this market that has a need that we can fulfill in the near time and we can make money the entire way. But um, Jensen definitely clearly had an uh, uh, his eye on the ball. Like he was talking about accelerated computing and AI and like, well, maybe not AI, but accelerated computing and all these things and all the workloads of the world needing to be sped up in like 2010s, man. And every year he would talk about it and everyone's like, oh, that's pretty cool. And every year it would happen, but every year we would never really see it, if that makes sense. And, and Jensen the entire time was giving away the ecosystem. So there's there's a there's a part of, um, so the GPU is the graphics processing unit, but also how to make sure that your code compiles. Because remember, um, your code in like a big monolithic way is not used to running on a graphics uh, on a graphics card. It has to be split into small pieces and then be fed into the machine parallel and then it can do it. So there's, there's something called CUDA, which is, um, I can't tell you what the acronym stands for, but the CUDA is the, the CUDA is like the software for helping parallel, uh, parallelize, uh, parallelize, um, I don't know, make the product, uh, make the code more parallel and then be put into the GPU. And, and importantly, Jensen thought about this, knew that if he gave away the software for free, it would create an ecosystem and started giving away, uh, giving it away for free as hard as he could to all the researchers. Um, I want to say as early as 2010. And so essentially he would just give away GPUs, give away CUDA, do all this stuff and make sure all the researchers were, were working and using GPUs and only knowing how to do, do their problems on GPUs and optimizing their, their you know, physics libraries the best they can on GPUs. And so what happens is um, Jensen kind of had an eye on the ball and knew that by 
creating an ecosystem and making it like the product to use. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a, a good example that's like a very consumer oriented one, but it's like, if everyone knows how to drive a car, they're all going to drive this type of car, right? They're not going to go out of their way to learn a new type of, you know, a new type, a, a motorcycle or something, right? So the, he literally gives away the, the car free so that everyone knows how to use it. Everyone um, uses it in their work clothes and then everyone optimizes around it. He does this for like a, a decade, essentially. And so as this improves and, and, and Jensen at the whole time too, like looks at these problems and knows that these like super massive multiplication problems are kind of the future of like big data, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think that would be a spicy opinion that in the 2010s that you knew that what matrix multiplication would be used for very large data sets and very hard, uh, complicated problems. That's not, that's not a big uh, leap, but really pursuing that path, seeing that vision and then kind of. Uh, creating the ecosystem around it, giving a lot of it away for free is how we locked in that ecosystem truly 10 years ago. So um, uh, the Transformers revolution, what is that and how does it um, connect to the, um, uh, the computing power and uh, software ecosystem that uh, NVIDIA built? Yeah, so Transformers are a specific type of, a, uh, a type of AI model, if that makes sense. So each transformer takes a lot of uh, a lot of con like a lot of pieces of data like in let's say a large language model it takes like a phrase a sentence and then it, it uh, puts all the information that each word has to each other into this transformer cell and what's important is transformers were um, there's actually another type called RNN and CNNs which is uh, recurrent neural ne networks and uh, convoluted neural networks there's other types of neural networks transformers don't perform as well as they do at small size. But the one thing transformers did really well is they scaled up infinitely. And so what, what, what kind of came to happen was that we realized that with the transformer model, we could scale these models much, much bigger. And when we scaled them, they improved and they continued to improve. And so these transformers are like the tiny single blocks of compute that really makes these models possible. And within each transformer and to, to train and learn and teach the transformer cell uh, what it knows, you have to, um, you have to, you essentially, it's like a, a guess and check process. You, you go, you, you know, uh, the computer guesses the out, the, the outcome and you're like, well, check it against the actuals. And then it just does it over and over and over and over again until, um, it literally has guessed and checked everything it could possibly between this, uh, it could possibly guess and check between this data set. And it's like, okay, We've learned all the relationships by guessing and checking our way to figure out the answers. Now we can take this, these relationships and whenever you feed us new information, we can use what we've learned from all the information that's been fed, fed to us and give you a result. That's the transformer LLM uh, breakdown, if that makes sense. And so all it's guessing and checking, lots and lots and lots of compute. So NVIDIA has two lines of revenue, gaming and uh, data centers. Tell the story of the past quarter and you know what ended up kind of culminating in the questions that have been answered as to uh, NVIDIA's importance uh, over the past few months. Yeah, so the, the big difference, as you know, is that ChatGPT has become a viral and very meaningful product, right? Um, I would say it's in the millions of users. It's still very small pen penetration as a percentage of the total. But the thing that's really important is that um, this AI thing has been happening for a while now, right? Like Ch Ch GPT-3 was really good. And as you know, if you use the G3.5, it's very, it's a very good model. But um, I feel like we finally hit the tipping point of where it became truly a, a product that anyone could consume. And then once people started to consume it, they started to realize the potential. So 
Um, and, and to be clear, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's still very immature, but, but one of the things that's really important about this whole story is that we have a roadmap for AI to get better, which is very rare. We, you know, we were talking about the transformers earlier. We realized that it, transformer models, as they get larger, they, they improve. So what, what, what research have, researchers have been doing is they've been making them larger and they've been improving. And so now we're at the point where it's literally like, uh, we need new GPUs so we can make larger models that we know are going to be better. And that's how we're going to improve. So um, going forward, uh, and, and this is obviously the quarter for it, uh, because people... Because, you know, the gold rush is on, the VCs are spending all the money, people are realizing the potential of ChatGPT and, and the right way to improve these models. Um, and, and like there is a lot of engineering, there's a lot of like work being done at the data science level. But the biggest problem that is a big ticket item for anyone to really enter the game is a lot of GPUs. Um, for example, there's this private company called, uh, this VC-backed company called Anthropic, and they literally just raised like billions of dollars. And they're like, we're going to spend billions of dollars on GPUs. And that's really what the the... The big difference is, is that um, these saw, like AI workloads, let's compare AI workloads to traditional workloads, like a traditional workload, like let's say hosting a website is like you would go, you know, you load the website and then the website, you know, pings a web server, the web server tells you all the responses. These are really easy problems in terms of compute. But if you look at AI, it's totally different, right? Um, let's say you ask AI a question. What it does is, you know, you, you, you know, it runs your 30-word sentence into its model. Its model has billions of parameters saying it's like, okay, tell me the relationship between all these words. Tell me what, what this means and what am I supposed to say back to it? And so it's little, each time you run uh, a chat GPT query, it costs cents, which is, you know, that doesn't sound like a lot. But like in, in terms of compute, like, you know, when you were Googling and stuff, like, you know, it didn't round to a cent. And now each time you, you, you query something, it costs cents. And so people, um, the, the big difference is that AI is way more compute intensive. And not only is it compute intensive, we know it gets better with even more computing. And so everyone has woken up and said, we need more GPUs now. It's a, you know, it's a war. And in order for us to win the war, the only way is to buy more picks and shovels and be pick and shovel providers. And so that's, that's really what's gotten us to this point. Yeah, so it's, it's um, everyone understands that those cents, if deployed in the right way, can be dollars. Um, but the cents are all going to be going to across, you know, uh, vertical after vertical uh, NVIDIA because they're the ones who allow you to try to uh, leverage uh, these models into um, your existing businesses in the first place. So, um, Doug, let's talk about the sort of like different types of customers um, who are going who are going to be needing NVIDIA. So you mentioned, you know, firms like Anthropic that are trying to develop, that are trying to develop their own foundational models. Like who else needs the type of compute that uh, NVIDIA is selling? So the big ones are Microsoft and, and OpenAI. That's the big, you know, that's the big uh, company. But then also um, a lot of enterprises are starting to put real, real dollars behind this. You know, Salesforce is saying, hey, we're going to add AI to all of our workloads. Um, you know, I think ServiceNow just did about big private cloud. So enterprises are starting to meaningfully move board because um, as much as anyone wants to just give away the keys to the kingdom to OpenAI, because OpenAI is truly the best pro product right now, a lot of co companies, especially tech companies, are going to want to do it their own and have some kind of proprietary difference. For example, Bloomberg made a, a Bloomberg GPT, which is the only trained on financial data, much smaller than the, you know, the OpenAI GPT, but it's actually better at just finance because there is specialization. So what's going to happen is everyone wants to make their own um, bring their own data sets and 
and make their own models that are built on just their proprietary data set that should outperform what is publicly available. So this is kind of the gold rush era, if that makes sense, where everyone is trying to figure out how to best make a model, how to best scale it, how to make it their own. NVIDIA actually is, even sells like a, essentially a managed service to train your own model. But everyone, uh, Meta is a good example. So so the right now, most of the core investing is company coming from these really big companies at the top, trying to provide and create the solutions that will probably try, they'll tr try to scale to sell as, as products to other companies, individuals like us, um, and et cetera. And the thing that is, no one really knows where the limits of improvement end. And right now, uh, OpenAI is clearly in the lead, but it's one of these things where the the it's so dynamic that the lead isn't is definitely not uh, guaranteed. So everyone has to invest into it. I mean, I think I think Sam Altman said something insane like to make OpenAI viable, we need at least a hundred billion dollars. Like that's crazy, right? But we know we know that the models get better if we make them bigger. And so the only way we can make them bigger is if we make we buy a lot more GPUs. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, all right, let's talk about competitors. Uh, NVIDIA can charge enormous margins because they're, to a certain extent, the only game in town. Um, but there are lots of other folks from, from you know, the likes of Cerebras to, um, uh, you know, Google and Microsoft themselves who tried to design, um, uh, uh, design their own chips. So um, what are the other approaches and why are they not as good as what um, uh, NVIDIA has on offer? So I really think there really is only one real competitor, and as that's Google. Um, and so one of the uh, I actually just wrote a piece about this called uh, the three-headed hydra. Like there's you know coming wave of AI, but I talk about how like this three-headed hydra of of um, of Nvidia's like competition. And so Nvidia has three important parts of the stack extremely locked up. One is the hardware. Um, uh, the other is the software with CUDA and all the optimization around it. And the third is like the networking and systems. And so actually the order from smallest to largest, the software, hardware, the networking. So software is really important. Uh, most, for example, Cerberus is a, is an, a hardware competitor, right? Well, when they started to make these hardware prop, these hardware um, solutions, one of the problems that every single one of these AI accelerator companies started to run into was we don't have the software to support the, the, you know, the prop, the problem. So essentially they're like, wait, we have to build it. We have to build a software stack out of the box every single time if we want to do a new problem. And um, I guess in that view was that uh, AI was going to be relatively fixed and people would know what, what would be the, you know, kind of like the right answer. But what actually ended up happening is the, the world was so dynamic, things changed. The GPUs kind of have, like GPUs are better than CPUs, but they still are enough, flexible enough to kind of be used for any matrix multiplication problem. And so... Um, a lot of companies actually made the bet on, on, on convoluted neural networks, but then what happened was the transformer model came and completely blew them away. So a lot of the AI startup companies, the hardware startup companies had a good hardware solution, but they didn't have a good software solution. Um, meanwhile, there's also another level in this, which is called the networking thing, because on top of, you know, having some hardware, what, what's happening with these models is they're becoming so, so, so large. Like you can't, you know, you, you go and buy a $40,000 GPU, right? That's not going to be enough to train your model. That'll take years to train them. Or I don't know. I can't months to train like a small model. And, and these really, really big model, they, models, they take months to train and they're being trained across tens of thousands of GPUs. And so one of the problems is, it's called the interconnect problem, is it's not only how good the software, uh, the hardware is, it's how good the hardware works together in a big system. The analogy I use is that 
the pizza is too big to bake in any single oven. So what's happening, and in, but in order for, you know, one cohesive model, aka pizza, to be finished, you have to cut each pizza into these tiny little slices, and each oven is meant, meant to cook just that slice, and then at the end, we're put all together into this giant cohesive model. Um, there is an advantage there called EnvyLink, um, and and there's a lot of software optimization too in order to scale up these models so that it's larger than just a single GPU. That is something that that NVIDIA has that they've done a really good job at. That I, I think the, the AI hardware companies really hasn't offered um, a good solution. Now, there is one other competitor in town, and that company is Google. Google has been a forefront on the forefront of uh, AI research for a long, long time. And they have a lot of the, the aspects and things that um, that NVIDIA has, uh, but custom and in-house. And it's only, it's proprietary. They don't really sell it as a solution. So uh, TPUs is their hardware. XLA is their software CUDA kind of, kind of layer. And they have their own like OCI networking product. I can't remember what it's called, but they have a whole, they have this whole solution and they have the models on top of it and they have the customer facing it. So Google right now is probably the closest real competitor that has a complete vertical full stack versus NVIDIA doesn't have a full vertical stack because they don't really, they're not customer facing and they don't really make the models. Like they, you know, they, they make some open source models. They, you know, they, they obviously improve the entire ecosystem, but they're essentially um, AI as a service and they're trying to sell it to people who are actually making the models versus Google is trying to own the entire stack consumer to model to hardware to networking and, and sell it to them. And so far, Google has, has truly the most competitive differentiated offering relative to NVIDIA but no one else has really made the solutions like NVIDIA does. And, that, and there's, like a, there's a big difference between making a theoretical chip that you, you know, can maybe solve a model according to, these t uh, according to the, the spec sheet, and then you, know, you take the chip and you try to you know, troubleshoot it, versus NVIDIA, you could buy 10,000 GPUs and it will work out the box. You know, that's, that's a big difference. The productization and, and how, how NVIDIA has done a really good job at making a product to sell to customers that's the their big differentiator, in my opinion. Um, so, and yeah. and and to bring this all back together, the three-headed Hydra of NVIDIA is really hard to compete with because you know we saw the AI hardware companies they tried to make a better hardware, but they couldn't beat them on you know they they tied them on hardware. Let's say that, but they couldn't beat them on the software. And, and let's not and then we're not even talking about the networking. So what happens is you have to beat them on all three vectors of competition at the same time. If you cut off one head, that's not going to be enough. You have to cut off all three at the same time, and each of the heads are at the top of the game leading and getting better. So this is the this is the hard problem is that you have to compete with them on three different fronts and most companies are lucky to be able to compete with them on one. So, um so Doug, we haven't mentioned China yet. And of course, um in October 2022 there were export controls which were put on um uh um which were put on China by the by the US Department of Commerce explicitly to stop uh, PRC-based data centers from being able to acquire these sorts of, um, uh, you know, full stack of NVIDIA compute, which has made them so much money over the past few months. So, um, you know, what is the, you know, what are the implications if, um, you know, it's really a two-headed race with NVIDIA and um, and Google, and, and there's no Chinese firm that ends up emerging to compete domestically with the sort of um, compute offerings that are going to be um, on sale uh, outside of China for years to come. Yeah, so um, I would say maybe the only company I've heard of is Beerin, the GPU company, but truly it's a, comp it's a product that's like super behind. Um, one of the benefits of this is that 
the U.S. for for better for worse definitely seems to be ahead in the innovation game, right? Like, um, and also the G the GPT problem. It seems like you know there's like a censorship problem. So uh, while we could run un unfettered, fast, and as fast as possible, China just doesn't have the engineering chops, and importantly, the October export controls kind of stop their ability to even do that. So. Um, remember, they can't make the chips. Everyone is reliant on TSMC, and we've we've done as hard as we can to cut them off and their ability to do that. Um, so on top of that, they can't really design the chips. I think some aspects of the EDA has been turned off for them. And so all in, the only the uh, and what we did on top of that was we we limited the networking aspect of it. And so uh, Nvidia can sell chips to China. And they do. They probably sell millions and billions of dollars worth of called eight H eight hundred. And what that is, it's like a, it's a, essentially a gimped version of the H one hundred, where it has much worse network. And so I think it's the specs are kind of similar. It's probably like a slower bin or something like that. But you know, the the department, uh, the BLS department was really thoughtful and was like, okay, well, um, we can give them as many hardware, you know, as many chips as they want, but they can't, you know, they can't scale up to make these ginormous models if they don't have the networking. And so that's how the United States has really hampered and cut off the ability for China to be even in the race. So I'm sure there are domestic companies are, that are trying to essentially get around this problem because the chips are the same. I'm sure there's some way to improve the networking and be able to scale it out into an even bigger, better way. But at the same time, it's just not going to be what is available off the chip today. And so it's just really hard for me to even imagine China competing on these large language models uh, because they, they have, you know, the hand, their hands tied behind their back, truly, because they, they don't have the ability to scale up to this huge amount. Of, so maybe they could scale up with even more H, H, H800s and it'll just cost some ridiculous number that is truly mind boggling. So, um, and that's just, you know, in the, the race to buy NVIDIA GPUs and there's essentially no real domestic competitor that has any kind of shot. I mean, US competitors right now are are still seem to be you know seem to be years behind Nvidia. So um, that's that's how I kind of think about the the Chinese ecosystem. And truly, um, they're pretty handicapped. And I, if I was uh, you know a Chinese you know a regulator or a Chinese AI guy, I'd be pretty pissed. Um, so there's um, uh, Chinese firms, however, um, are not restricted in accessing cloud services overseas. Um, so there's really nothing today stopping, um, you know, a Chinese company from, from buying, uh, the top of the line NVIDIA compute from AWS or what have you. Um, mm -hmm. is that like annoying at all? Um, if you're, um, you know, if you're a firm and you have to rely not on, you know, Alibaba cloud, but on, um, uh, on, um, uh, on Western clouds or even Alibaba cloud based in Singapore that can still buy, um, as many A100s as they feel like, is that, is that you know, does that end up mattering all that much um, as long as that window is still open for these companies? I think it matters quite a bit. I mean, it it's kind of relegated China to being a consumer, a purchaser, a seller. Like they can only buy the IP, but they can never own it, if that makes sense. We're trying to lease the future to them and uh, which will be, which sounds really profitable and truly is, if that makes sense. And I think that the, the, the cat's out of the bag, the fact that China really cut off the, the West to their internet. So we're like, Okay, well, we're going to cut you off to all the AI research, all the AI hardware, and now you're going to have to buy it as a service from us. So I think that this, this, there's kind of like this, this tip or tat, and I think that it's just really 
it's really hard to imagine anyone truly competing. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing, Doug, because like, you know, you can't compete then on the hardware level, right? If if you're sort of locked up from all this stuff. But if you if you if you as a consumer facing or like an enterprise you know, or, or some B2B firm, um, you end up training your um, uh, training your model on, on AWS and you have a product that's competitive with Salesforce, then like you can compete with Salesforce. Right. Um, and uh, and so, you know, we talked about like, you know, you're spending pennies in um, uh, uh, in compute on queries, hoping to get, you know, dollars of, of revenue back. And you know, it's an it's an open question whether it will, you know, it is it is the right strategic calculus for America to allow um, Chinese firms to develop these capabilities, um, even if they'll never be able to, um, you know, even if they'll they'll still sort of remain dependent on uh, uh, overseas compute and uh, compute and never really be able to domesticate the semiconductor ecosystem as as she clearly wishes he could. Yeah, I I, I don't know. It's it's pretty hard, I guess. So so yeah, maybe hopefully they can sit you know, spend pennies to get dollars. But realistically, if I had to guess, they are be spending pennies to make 50 cents. So it's going to come in at a lot lower margins than it used to be. And I think that's a big deal. But once again, if we really are, um, if China and US really are these like ideological, you know, the ideological trade, mind, whatever war um, going between these two countries, why bother at all? And I think that um, today's version of, how this is working out, it seems like we're closer to the why bother at all and truly being cut off to the future like this would make me, you know, if I was a Chinese, if I was a Chinese uh, regulator or whatever guy, you know, Paul Bureau member, I'd be very, very pissed. I mean, it's very strategic as we all know. AI is going to be a very important thing. I know it is very nascent. There is a lot of hype and I think some of the hype might be getting a little hot, but at the same time, you roll it all together, um, we really have cut off the future of, you know, humanity's roadmap of progress in terms of technology doesn't seem to be available to China in scale. Um, there's a lot of ifs. And even then, um, even if you can, you know, get the, the GPT-4 or whatever, um, some of the, you know, in, in theory, the future of how this really plays out and it becomes really valuable is everyone gets access to this big model and they get to use it for their, themselves. And, and I think that, it just seems like China is completely left out of the the picture altogether in terms of like like it's the same it's the same kind of technological um, like theory behind how we restrict their semiconductors. Oh yeah, we'll let them have something that's ten years old. That's how it kind of feels, if that makes sense. Um, and and there was a race between China and U.S. for for AI, but it definitely the the hardware aspect that we hampered their hardware really cut them off of their ability to scale. So. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a uh, it's an interesting question, right? And it and it sort of like puts the lie to the thing that Jensen Huang's been saying on on uh, TV that like, oh yeah, like if we don't if we don't let Chinese firms buy semiconductors, then like we're gonna fall behind. Um, but it's particularly not the case if um, you know Chinese you know Chinese firms are are sort of using compute, but instead of housing it in Guizhou, they're just like using it in, you know, server farms in Seattle and and, and, and Singapore. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is a, a sort of broader philosophical, I don't know, nature of the competition policy question, like whether or not the U.S. Um, is going to be comfortable with China, uh, you know, with Chinese firms having relatively unfettered access to um, uh, to these hardware stacks, but just outside of, you know, the 
the territory of the PRC. And I think that's, um, uh, it's definitely a debate you'll start to see heating up. There's already been some. Yeah, um, I, I didn't realize that they could lease, they could buy from uh, essentially across, you know, across the ocean to Singapore or something. But the but yeah. important part of this whole thing is latency is really important, um, right? Because, you know, they can, they can use chat GPT or whatever, but um, just the raw latency of it is going to be a lot slower, you know? In, se- in the United States, we get to use it, we get to, you know, 60 millisecond, whatever response back for them might be a second, two seconds, right? And so sure that um, pro- most, some consumers will be able to eat that. But I guess, I guess the fear is that like in terms of like technological, like warfare, for example, they'll always be cut off of the super high end stuff because it has to be done. The latency is a really important part of it. But yeah, I don't feel like that's going to fly, that the US is going to let them rent models from US companies. Yeah. Um. You know, and we've already seen restrictions like open chat GPT is only available like, um, you know, it's not publicly available in China. I know there's like plenty of uh, Chinese content creators, at least online, who figured out their way to, you know, spoof a, a phone number or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, having this stuff not be available at scale is something that, um, you know, is obviously having an economic impact. And, you know, the the the, the sort of justification is that... Um, you know, if something awful happens, like you're not going to have a uh, hopefully, hopefully like AWS knows what's going on in their servers enough to stop a sort of like drones, like a Chinese drone swarm invading uh, Taiwan via their uh, their sort of like cloud compute in Singapore. But, yeah, um, uh, I, I, yeah, I would think they're aware enough. But on top of that, even if the drone swarm was, um, I'm assuming like the, the closer the closer compute cluster is going to win because one's going to be faster than the other. And so if you have to lease it, like, you know, th- it is it is a, a physical problem, right? Where it's like, hey, if they're renting, at, you know, these AI models in Virginia uh, or North Carolina, wherever the giant uh, server farm place is, that's going to be, uh, you know, 600 millisecond, uh, 600 millisecond latency versus, you know, if you're running it locally in Taiwan, the the faster one will win. So I I do think I don't know. I'm I'm pretty curious. And I would guess that these kind of like drone swarm questions are gonna be a really interesting future one. I'm I'm sure like the United States is clearly trying its best to um adopt as much intelligent stuff into the you know, into the weapon systems of the future. But um if it if it can even be done like from a swarm level, like, you know, via cloud i feel like this doesn't even make sense so yeah it's gonna be interesting i my gut says my gut says the united states government will stop stop their ability to do right or they'll have a restrictions list as well um so doug speaking of uh sort of like bringing the bringing compute to the device this is sort of the dream right is you don't need to use supercomputers um that you can just have it on your pc or your iphone or your you know smart glasses or whatever the hell we're going to be doing in 2030. Um, to what extent is is this sort of bringing the inference down to the device a threat to um, uh, to, to NVIDIA's future? You're right. The most ideal future is that, hey, everyone has their own chat GPT, their own whatever this. And like chat GPT is generalizable. That's one of the, or GPT is generalizable. That's one of the big benefits of it. Um, it'd be on your phone or your computer. But so far, it just doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. So imprints will probably be done. Like there will be lower quality imprints being done on the stuff like that, where it's like dumber, if it makes sense, where it's like, hey, photo recognition. Photo recognition, for example, 
your face recognition on your phone, that is, that is an inference problem. And that is solved on your phone without, you know, without the cloud stuff. Um, but the really, the really high end cutting models, uh, cutting edge models seem to be done in these ginormous data sets, like these data sets that, you know, the phone, it, it's going to take a decade or two of improvement of phones in order to get to chat GPT four, for example, right on your phone, it's gonna take like a decade to get there in terms of the size of the model to be able to po uh, be able to host it on your phone. And so right now, um, the, d the desire to have on, on device inference is really high, but so far all cutting, uh, cutting edge models are being done in, in the cloud because, um, a lot of like, a lot of these emergent things are, are only ha only happen when the models become super, super, super big. Right. So it's kind of like the difference between a first, uh, a fifth graders English and a, a college professor's English, right? They both are speaking English, but whatever that difference is, is very, you know, it's, it's, it's minute, but it's a big difference. Right. And so we're, we're not, we're not going to be able to see any cutting edge models that have these like really amazing things like the, you know, the true aha moment, um, for quite some time on the device. So Doug, Doug, let's close maybe by thinking about sort of NVIDIA as a, um, you know, from a, from a public policy lens, uh, you know, we have the CHIPS Act, of course, which is about to spend tens of billions of dollars, um, both to sort of bring fabrication to the US, but also hopefully to sort of uh, help kickstart the next generation of um, whatever hardware company that turns into the NVIDIA of the 2030s or 2040s. Um, what lessons from NVIDIA's arc uh, should policymakers take as they're thinking about what, um, what is necessary for um, the country to, um, uh, to cultivate that next generation of firms? Yeah, this is a hard question because NVIDIA's history truly is um, a little bit like being in the right place at the right time, creating a GPU, and then knowing, creating that logic and being like, well, if we can do this in the future, we'll be able to do this. It kind of reminds me of like, if you heard the Reed Hastings story, the Netflix guy, you know, he's like, hey, we're shipping the, we're shipping DVDs, but one day we'll be able to stream on the internet. That long-term bet is really what Jensen made a long time ago. Um, it's It seems hard for me to imagine another company making that kind of a long-term societally changing bet, but um, NVIDIA for, for, uh, for its entire life has been, uh, fighting, duking it out in the, the graphics, the GPU market. And I, I would say that like the competition that happened in the U S was probably good for it to improve its product and create a roadmap. Choosing winners usually never works. And NVIDIA definitely won the right to be the king of GPUs. Um, but the hard problem with this whole thing is that NVIDIA was always a fabulous company, so they kind of got to ride on the coattails of TSMC. So there's this like weird public, you know, use problem where we have this ginormous, like they were, they were able to be, be so innovative on the back of the TSMC's massive societal improvement by creating this open foundry for everyone. And I think that that's probably the biggest lesson for public policymakers because, um, the story of NVIDIA probably wouldn't be able to be possible without the story of TSMC. And the story of TSMC obviously is a company, a foundry that is uh, stranded for all for intents and purposes and uh, you know, 100 miles off the coast of China. And so um, having that availability and having that ability to create that platform at the bottom of the compute level to then enable other companies to build on top of that, I think that's really important. I think that's what we're trying to solve with the CHIPS Act. But, but frankly... The CHIPS Act is um, helping, but is it enough? 
we're going to see. And um, we're going to, there's actually a series of headlines I think is really interesting right now talking about how uh, NVIDIA is actually seriously considering taping out at 18A uh, for, for Intel, which would be a huge win for the West, if that makes sense, is that, hey, all of a sudden we have these GPUs that are being able, these these super important GPUs that are like the most strategic thing that you could possibly want out of compute out of a compute today, and it could be fabbed in the United States uh, off of Intel's process. I think that that would be a huge win, and it's something that, we, um, that people who are close to space are all watching and waiting for. Um, also because Intel's 18A process is an important inflection node for, for Intel as well. So I think that that's the, the takeaway is that um, we do, NVIDIA was enabled by the fact that there was a, a, a foundry that could do everything they wanted so that um, they really were able to focus on the market, to, op- to focus on the innovation, to focus on the design while TSMC took care of the rest. I think that having that public asset is really important. So that's, that's my takeaway. I don't know, would love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also a sort of story of a, of founder-run companies and the the, yeah. the choices and long-term bets that um, Jensen and his team were able to make are it's just not possible unless you have the sort of cachet that you do as the person who's you know fought and it. won all the, all the battles over the um uh, over the past decades. Jensen is one of the longest public CEOs in in um in in as far as I know, right? He founded the company in 1994 or something like that. It is 2023. Um, Zuckerberg obviously did Facebook and, and uh, you know, the Google guys are out of there. I think he's the single largest public company CEO who's still, who's still at the top of his game. And what's amazing is that, you know, after 20 years, you know, you, sometimes people miss the boat and they get less good. Uh, you cannot say that is the case for Jensen. Jensen has definitely been on top of the ball the entire time. He's been talking about accelerated compute for a decade and 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 he's been talking about all these societal changes and look it's happening and he's been right the entire time we should have listened i mean that's kind of the thing that's really amazing is like jensen has been right he's been right with a long-term vision um that is so rare to see that you know truly being able to see five to ten years in the future very 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 rare and jensen did it so that's that i think that's a really important thing is like being able to yeah to to give the founder the capability to to run the ship like they should um because you know, Jensen obviously was focused on things along the way, but he was always steering to this long-term target on the horizon. And I think that's really important as well. We talked on another podcast about James Glick. And yeah. I feel like there should be like a James Glick chapter on NVIDIA, you know, when he hopefully writes his AI book about just like how kind of like absurd and beautiful it is that a um, a company that was built to allow, you know, teenagers to play video games um and you know render wolfenstein uh ends up being the thing that like ushers in an entire industrial revolution and there's something like really like wonderful and human that that us just wanting to play games that were more realistic um ends up turning into this incredible um thing that's going to change um you know not just gamers but all of our lives yeah, there's something there's something beautiful about play, right? It's, uh, it's something we're social animals and we play, and that's really cool. Um, and also, speaking of James, like um, I'm literally reading the information right now, rereading it because I think it's um, it's very applicable. I think that one of the things that may be a little underappreciated is that um, AI, in a lot of ways, is like an information compiler, um, right? Because uh, and the Jensen's keynote talks about it. it's like, hey, you can take any amount of data that we know there's a relationship, and we can put it into another form of data, right? 
text to video, video to text, whatever, but also like text to DNA. Like you, we could ask ChatGPT right now to go write a song about, um, write a chip song for China Talk and transcode it into DNA sequences. We can do that. Like, isn't that cool? Like all information is able, able to be translated into all information because of AI. And I think that's really cool. A universal information compiler. And I think that um, we're going to, you know, obviously it is, we're a little hot right now. Things are a little peaky, a little bubbly, a little bubblish as people are freaking out a little bit. Uh, and I'm aware going on a podcast is definitely not a good, uh, good, good sign of that. But the societal change of this is going to be a big deal. And I'm really excited for the James Mike book is, as well. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here, Jordan. Nice to see you again.
你们来成都耍。哪儿来的小伙子是成都物业主耍？哪儿来的小伙子是成都物业主耍？哪儿来的小伙子是成都物业主耍？哪儿来的小伙子是成都物业主耍？哪儿来的小伙子是成都物业主耍？哪儿来的小伙子是成都物业主耍？哪儿来的小伙子是成都物业主耍？哪儿来的小伙子是成都物业主耍？帅到没朋友，帅到没朋友，帅。